Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. When it comes to the story of General Douglas MacArthur, many people are familiar with his exploits during World War I, World War II, and Korea. Few people, however, are aware of his service during the 1914 occupation of Veracruz, Mexico, by U.S. forces. As both one of his early adventures as a young officer, and as an important window into his understanding of his duty as an officer, Veracruz is a pivotal part of the MacArthur story. A 34-year-old captain at the time, MacArthur's actions would be both courageous and reckless, bringing the United States perilously close to war, but also following the maxim of every great commander, to know the battlefield. His actions at Veracruz would result in a second baptism of fire, and would provide an early indication of his tendency to sidestep or challenge authority. MacArthur himself would see the situation more simply. In later years, he would describe his actions at Veracruz as simply a wild night under the Southern Cross. This podcast will explore this chapter of MacArthur's life. The story of Veracruz begins several years before MacArthur set foot in Mexico, in the events of the Mexican Revolution. During his nearly 30-year tenure as president of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz had consolidated power and centralized the Mexican state. A virtual dictator, he presided over a time of relative stability, and in 1908 he announced that Mexico was ready for democracy. Disapproving of many of the candidates that emerged, however, he decided that rather than step aside, he would run against them. In 1910, with elections looming, and with Francisco Madero emerging as a serious challenger, Diaz had Madero arrested. In the elections that followed, Madero had widespread support, but Diaz was declared the unanimous winner. Reacting to this news, Madero called on his supporters to revolt. In the resulting revolution, Diaz fled the country. Madero lasted a little over a year as president. His successful call for a revolution, while it had wiped away Diaz's dictatorship, also set loose other powerful factions that he could not control. He was eventually assassinated on the orders of General Victoriano Huerta. Already fraught with tension, the relationship between the United States and Mexico disintegrated with the rise of Huerta, as U.S. citizens and businesses in Mexico were increasingly subject to harassment. As the Mexican Revolution continued, American gunships anchored off the coast of Tampico, Mexico in 1914, ostensibly to protect American business interests and citizens. Although Huerta's forces and the American forces had not displayed any hostility to each other, a misunderstanding on April 9th between a group of American sailors and some Mexican soldiers resulted in a crisis when the American commander requested an apology from his Mexican counterpart. When this apology was denied, and with word coming on April 21st of a German ship bringing weapons to Huerta via the Mexican port of Veracruz, President Woodrow Wilson, just months into his first term and without waiting for Congress, sent an American fleet to blockade Veracruz. As the American fleet blockaded Veracruz, sailors and marines seized the city. 
On April 30th, the 5th Brigade, a small expeditionary force under the command of Major General Frederick Funston, landed at Veracruz. Although President Wilson had ordered this military action without waiting for congressional approval, there was a lot of public support for punishing Huerta. The only area in which Wilson faced opposition was from congressmen and officials in the War Department, who wanted the president to go further and order American troops to march against Mexico City. Anxious to avoid war, Wilson resisted these calls. Nevertheless, even as Wilson was advising General Funston to keep a close check on his troops and to keep them confined to Veracruz, back in Washington, D.C., in anticipation of war, Secretary of War Lindley Garrison and General Leonard Wood had begun planning to send an additional expeditionary force to Veracruz. By the end of the first day of planning, General Wood had even selected his headquarters staff for the invasion. Wilson may have wished to avoid war, but his government and his generals had a very different idea. Part of this was their responsibility to be prepared for any scenario, but they were also eager to fight, and Douglas MacArthur would play a key role in their preparations for war. General Wood and Secretary Garrison ultimately decided to send 34-year-old Captain Douglas MacArthur to Veracruz on a secret mission to gather intelligence about a move to Mexico City. This mission was very risky and had the potential to trigger a wider conflict. It was also a mission against the wishes of the president, and both General Wood and Secretary Garrison were aware that if MacArthur was captured on this mission, war between Mexico and the United States would be inevitable. Nevertheless, both Wood and Garrison deemed the mission vital and gave MacArthur his orders. They urged MacArthur to act with caution and to keep his mission secret from General Funston when he arrived in Veracruz. When asked how long it would take him to get ready to leave, MacArthur promptly replied, One hour. Pleased, General Wood made it clear that when war came, he intended to make MacArthur his G3, or intelligence officer. On May 1st, MacArthur arrived at Veracruz aboard the battleship Nebraska. Going ashore, he presented his credentials to General Funston. These documents simply stated that he was to be regarded as an unattached and independent agent of the General Staff and War Department, and was to be allowed freedom of movement. It is unclear if MacArthur informed Funston of his exact mission, but it is certain that Funston warned MacArthur about venturing out of the city. MacArthur immediately began to assess the situation in Veracruz. His first impression of the city as the starting point for an invasion was relatively negative. He found that a total lack of animal transport rendered the army immobile and unable to break out of the city. The railroad tracks leading in and out of the city seemed to offer a solution, and there were plenty of cattle cars that could be used to transport the army. There were, however, no locomotives in Veracruz. According to MacArthur's account, he was convinced that the all-important initial operations of the command might well depend upon locating the locomotives. Without them, any invasion would falter from the start. By May 6th, the officers of the 5th Brigade, including Captain Constant Cordier, one of MacArthur's friends, were convinced that war was inevitable. Well aware of this atmosphere in Veracruz, MacArthur must have keenly felt the weight of his mission. Incapable of inaction, he began making plans to accomplish his reconnaissance mission. With some assistance, he located a Mexican engineer who had worked on the Veracruz-Alvarado line and who said that the locomotives were in Alvarado. He found the engineer drunk in a bar, and after sobering him up, MacArthur bribed the engineer to take him by handcar along the Veracruz line to Alvarado in return for $150 gold. It was agreed that two other Mexicans would assist them in the journey.
MacArthur took Captain Cordier into his confidence, and Cordier passed along what he knew of MacArthur's proposed plan to General Funston's aide, Captain Ball. Avoiding Funston entirely, MacArthur also approached Major Alexander Dade for advice. Dade advised against the trip, arguing that it would be too dangerous and whatever the rumors, Washington did not want war. He qualified these statements, however, by pointing out that the mission would generate wonderful intelligence, the kind of information success turned on. Predictably, MacArthur was not dissuaded. Whether he was aware of it or not, he was following in the footsteps of Robert E. Lee, a man he admired as a great commander and often sought to emulate during his early career. Nearly 70 years prior, as an aide to General Winfield Scott in the Mexican-American War, Lee had made a similar journey, scouting the route from Veracruz to Mexico City. This reconnaissance directly led to a series of American victories on the march to Mexico City. At dusk on May 6th, MacArthur made his way out of Veracruz. Once outside the city, he met up with the engineer at the rail intersection. According to MacArthur's account, the only thing he was carrying was his ID tag, a pistol belt, and a small Bible. He then searched the engineer, confiscating the man's thirty-eight revolver and a small dirk, and then had the engineer search him to prove that he had nothing of value on his person and that killing him wouldn't be of any tangible benefit. What was left unspoken, however, was that the bounty on an American officer caught unprotected in the Mexican countryside would have been considerable. The two men made their way towards Alvarado via hand car and horses. Meeting up with the other members of their party, they then traveled by hand car again. MacArthur, with his Anglo-Saxon looks, did not blend into the Mexican population, and so every time the hand car passed through towns, he hopped off and skirted the town, tying one of the Mexicans to him so that he would not be abandoned. This continued throughout the journey. Against all odds, MacArthur and his party arrived safely in Alvarado early in the morning on May 7th. Once there, he was able to locate five locomotives in fairly good condition, three of which he believed would be vital in the coming invasion. Having accomplished his goal, MacArthur and his companions began their return trip. So far, the mission had gone without a hitch, but that was about to change in a dramatic way. On the return trip, MacArthur was moving around the town of Salinas, with one of his companions tied to him. They were stopped by five armed men, who were on foot and were not wearing uniforms. MacArthur and his companion made a run for it, and were fired upon. According to MacArthur's story, they outran all but two of their attackers. MacArthur turned and fired on these attackers, and both men went down, presumably dead. The journey back to Veracruz continued, and at another town, surrounded by a driving mist, they suddenly found themselves in the midst of fifteen mounted armed men. In the skirmish that followed, MacArthur was knocked down, but managed to bring down four of his attackers. The other horsemen fled, and in taking stock of his circumstances, MacArthur discovered three bullet holes in his jacket. His guide had also been shot in the shoulder, and after bandaging the man's shoulder, they continued on their journey. The men probably hoped that this would be their last encounter, but it was not. By Laguna they again encountered armed men who fired upon them. Furiously pulling and pushing on the handcar's lever, they outdistanced all but one of the attackers. He shot at MacArthur, leaving yet another bullet hole in MacArthur's shirt. MacArthur returned fire and the man and his horse fell on the tracks in front of the handcar. Removing the carcass from the tracks, MacArthur and his companions continued on the way to Veracruz. They arrived in Veracruz at dawn. The mission had been a success. 
MacArthur had not been captured or identified, and he'd brought back valuable intelligence. But he was shaken by his experiences. His friend Captain Cordier wrote, When I saw MacArthur, he still displayed signs of the tremendous nervous strain he had been under. This exhaustion and stress did not prevent MacArthur from sitting down the afternoon he arrived to write a letter to General Wood, informing him of the mission's success. Concluding that he hoped Wood would soon be at the head of an invasion force, MacArthur flattered the general, predicting, If death does not call you, the Veracruz campaign can have but one ending, the White House. As one MacArthur biographer explains, Veracruz discloses much about MacArthur, his ingenuity, his eye for terrain, his personal bravery, and his toadying to superiors. Pleased with the young captain's success, General Wood recommended MacArthur for the Medal of Honor, citing his bravery and initiative. Reports by MacArthur and Captain Cordier were also submitted to the board. This would be MacArthur's first brush with the Medal of Honor. The son of a Medal of Honor recipient, MacArthur was anxious to equal if not surpass his father's accomplishments. In this case, however, he would be disappointed. In the end, the awards board rejected General Wood's recommendation on the grounds that awarding MacArthur for his actions might encourage other junior officers to take actions against the wishes of their local commanders that could jeopardize the latter's plans. The major point of contention was that General Funston, MacArthur's local commander, had no knowledge of the mission. Unknown to MacArthur, Samuel Parks, a private of the 28th Infantry Regiment, had left Veracruz and deserted into Mexican lines the same night MacArthur left on his mission. Parks was executed by the Mexicans, and Funston reacted by strengthening sentry positions to make it virtually impossible for his soldiers to leave Veracruz. Given Funston's reaction to the execution of Private Parks, the officers who knew of MacArthur's mission kept this information from Funston. As a result, Funston knew nothing of MacArthur's mission until he was approached for confirmation by the Medal of Honor Awards Board in January of 1915. He wrote favorably of MacArthur and argued that the medal was justifiable, but it made no difference in the end. The award was denied. Frustrated by the board's decision, MacArthur wrote the board a blistering rebuttal in which he accused them of rigid narrow-mindedness and a lack of imagination. His frustration may be understandable. Veracruz is most known today for the extraordinary high number of medals of honor that were given away to the sailors and marines that secured the port when it was occupied. By the standards of today, and even by the standards of the Civil War, there is a good argument that the medal was being given away rather cavalierly. MacArthur probably would have viewed his rejection in relation to these awards. By challenging the awards board, MacArthur had made enemies. He had also convinced many that he was someone who expected special treatment and favor. Despite this, however, he was soon back in Washington, D.C., where he was promoted to major. He had made enemies, but clearly he still had powerful friends. Interestingly, Veracruz is the one topic in MacArthur's autobiography that he leaves open, not in a rhetorical sense or as a literary device designed to feign impartiality, but in the sense that it is an argument that he doesn't try to win. In his autobiography, MacArthur sums up his actions at Veracruz this way, I may have been right, I may have been wrong. War did not materialize, and the utility of our exploits would never be known, but even my old frontier friends would have agreed that it was a wild night under the Southern Cross. Thank you for listening. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh, <laughs>